Welcome to Tangents, the podcast from Coin Center, where we talk about basically whatever we want. Uh, this week, your host is me, Niraj, and I'm joined by Will Duffield, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Will, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, Will, a couple weeks ago, wrote an article uh, that was published in Cato or on Cato's website that really jumped out to me because it's something that I'm interested in, and that is the sort of politics of crowdfunding online. Uh, as as anyone who's probably listening to this podcast knows, it's an issue that has become hotly politicized over the last few years and will really succinctly captured what has been happening there. Um, so, well, what, uh, I guess, what was, the, what was the, the thrust of your article? Well, I tried to go back and really look at how crowdfunding has become politicized over time or become a focus of politics um, really over the past decade or so, um, starting with George Zimmerman's shooting of, of Trayvon Martin and his attempts to raise money for his defense in a very different internet than the one we have today, but one that even then was beginning to face some of the same pressures. Um, he had a personal website and he used a, a PayPal donation link embedded there to receive donations. So in a way it was sort of before the platform internet or the platform internet as we know it today, you obviously had PayPal, but you didn't have Facebook, GoFundMe, et cetera. Um, you saw Zimmerman attempting to raise money in a quasi-decentralized fashion. He had a personal website. He was using this, this PayPal third-party plugin, and people were giving him money. PayPal then was the gatekeeper, as it were, to his, his fundraising, and they were petitioned to, to remove that, that affiliate link. Um, they didn't act on the time, but since then, as crowdfunding specific platforms like uh, GoFundMe have really become more prominent and a more popular way of, of raising money, um, with each controversy, particularly in this case, I was focusing on people raising money for their legal defense after questionable shootings. Um, receive pushback from the public at large and the platform GoFundMe in particular responded over time by narrowing what it would allow on the platform in terms of these sorts of fundraisers. Um, even at one point banning legal defense fundraisers raisers altogether and then adopting a policy that allows them but gives GoFundMe tremendous leeway to pick and choose what, what they allow relative to the perhaps more open um, but rule-bound uh, arrangements that they had previously. Um, and there's always a trade-off there as, as we've seen these platforms implement more specific rules um, and, and often give themselves more ability to respond to public pressure or shifting sentiment then they lose the legitimacy that a broader, um, perhaps more easily interpretable um, rule set would provide. Over time, would you say that um, 
I guess activists have learned that the of uh, that payment processors are the kind of at the moment the most effective choke point to target. Well, I think it's <clears throat> excuse me. Um, payment processors have become uh, essentially a fallback target, or uh, as mainstream platforms have become more restrictive in their policies. Um, largely post-2016, you've seen a, a kind of clampdown on a lot of the main, from YouTube to Facebook, Reddit, trying to clean up their act in, in one way or another. And you obviously then have speakers who are cast out. Um, they used to spend time on these platforms, and they can't anymore. So they create or join alternative platforms, um, which aren't beholden to the same advertising pressures often as, as the big boys. Um, and then in order to get at them, if you want to deplatform them, you have to go after their fundraising. So that's really what's shifted um, a lot of this pressure towards fundraising platforms as a choke point, is that some of the more mainstream platforms in which creators could share advertising revenue have become more restrictive. Yeah, that touches on something as I was reading your writing that jumped out to me. You mentioned that um, internet speech is an ecosystem. It's not necessarily just Facebook or just Twitter, uh, but there are smaller players that can fill in the gaps where where people have been deplatformed. Uh, yeah, and I, I think fill in the gaps is a great way to put it because the idea is that all of these platforms are in a sense working together to provide an environment in which speech can find a home and an audience. And you might not always get the audience or the platform you want um, if your speech is seen as disreputable or simply off topic for a given forum. Um, you may be asked to, to leave, to put it elsewhere. Um, but within the ecosystem that is the modern sort of Section 230 protected internet, you can see all different platforms pop up with different rules and norms and kind of community focuses um, in order to host different sorts of speech. So you can have a well-moderated Pinterest where you can let your kids go and look for treehouse pictures. And you have something like 4chan as a disreputable clearinghouse for speech that isn't wanted elsewhere. There's something that that comes up a lot in the context of speech online and deplatforming is that you, you're sort of guaranteed in this country, not necessarily by the government or the principle of free speech is that you can say what you want, but you are not necessarily guaranteed an audience. Uh, so how does that kind of play into this with something like, I don't know, you've got say some, someone like Milo, who I don't even know where, where he is now. Um, basically made irrelevant, but still speaking. Do you think, like, what, what do you think about that? The sort of, the fact that you can say things, but you're not, have no access to an audience with these smaller platforms? You know, I, I think he's an interesting case because I think he is one of the, the sort of most effectively deplatformed characters out there. Um, I think it has to do in a large part with who his audience was. Um, he presented himself as 
quite radical on one hand, but at the same time spoke to a fairly mainstream kind of collegiate conservative audience. Um, so I think deplatforming hurt him perhaps more than it might have impacted a more genuinely extremist speaker um, because his audience wasn't willing to follow him to the sorts of platforms that he then found himself needing to use and wasn't invested in him as a, a figure or, or profit um, enough to sort of clear the, the hurdles that come with that. Um, I find Stefan Molyneux a very interesting sort of deplatforming example because he has run through this whole whole chain from um, being banned from YouTube to moving to a personal site called Free Domain, um, then being banned by PayPal, um, restricting his ability to fund that. And he had a couple of vlogs really lamenting um, this loss of fundraising opportunity but has then re resorted to Bitcoin cash donations, which at least some, some number of his fans seem committed enough and invested enough in learning the technology to support him that way. Um, but I think if you're perhaps more milquetoast or closer to the mainstream and that happens to you, you have less, fewer fans who are willing to go dig up Bitcoin cash and give it to you. Yeah, so there's that's two things then. So I guess first, my first immediate question is why why would they use Bitcoin Cash? But that's fine. Uh, and then <laughs> uh, I guess I didn't realize that somebody even like him, who my only experience with him is, is I don't know why I watched this was a three hour debate between him and a flat earther, which is time I'll never get back. But it was so it was so bizarre that I had to just keep watching uh, the idea that. People, so like to use your, to borrow a term, those, those profit sort of figures have enough clout with their core followers that they can bring them to a new platform, be it a speech platform or in this case, a payment platform to support them. Um, yeah, so being deplatformed is really a make or break moment for, for any, any speaker or ideologue. Um, right, that, that's the moment when you you kind of test the audience that you've built, how much, you know, how, how valuable are you to them? Yeah. I mean, and, and it's been very interesting to see in some cases recently um, in response to kind of Reddit mass ban. Um, this, this ban included the Donald subreddit. Um, you saw a couple other subreddits sort of voluntarily leave Reddit and move to a new .win domain that the Donald had stood up um, preemptively. They expected to be banned um, and, and they were worried enough about it that they risked moving their community to a new platform um, before that happened, figuring that it would be easier to make that move to legitimate it before the ban than in all of the chaos afterwards when mods couldn't communicate with people anymore and you have those sorts of things. Uh, do you happen to know, um, were those subreddits kind of Trump related or were they just sort of um, off topic? The, the one I'm most familiar with was really almost a, a Channer firearms board. Um, okay. So a lot of irreverent Channer culture brought to um, Second Amendment advocacy and 
firearms hobbyism. And it had always served as kind of an outlet from the more serious, perhaps safety conscious firearms subreddits. And how, yeah, that's where you can post your, your memes, I guess. And I think every community has the serious people, but you can, you can enjoy, enjoy a meme here and there. Um, well, and that, again, that speaks to the value of the internet as a speech ecosystem, because it's much easier to maintain the serious forums when you also have the honeypot of somewhere irreverent and silly, where you can tell people to go, you know, take that right. out of here. There's a place for it. You aren't in exile, but but go away. This isn't the place. For that. Yeah, you'll get your your reward, your points, uh, whatever. You'll find like-minded people there, but there's still a place. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, it's funny in, in uh, sort of crypto Twitter that just reminded me that we have to we have these uh, sort of the technologists the tr- and the the investors and then the traders who are a lot less kind of they have a they're they're less focused on the long-term game and they're more about memes and so on. And we're all mashed up together. Uh, and it's like, we have these two orbits that form. It's just sort of reminded me of that. Do you uh, see separate <clears throat> spaces that then tend to cater more to, to one cohort than the other? What you see every now and then there are uh, these sort of network social graph analyses that people do of top sort of Twitter crypto Twitter people's followings and you can see very clearly distinct groups. So Twitter has, has sort of separated itself into the, the, the forums. It does work. And then of course that there's a whole other, um, there's a whole other thing that happens there because those separate groups turn into armies when necessary and they can clash with the other ones. Well, and, and it, it speaks to a kind of central problem of Twitter in that you can informally have separate Twitters, but it is still on one platform. It can be quote tweeted throughout the entire platform and mm-hmm. you can really lose the context of, you know, fintech Twitter in which a, a tweet might have been born as it then ricochets around the rest of the platform. And that's always made governance on, on these sorts of spaces really difficult um, because moderators have to end up adopting someone's context at the end of the day. And it'll probably upset everyone else with different context. That's a good point. Um, a, one theme that I picked up in your writing was this idea that the, the more important, well, let me back up, the sort of layered onion, if you will, of intermediaries that we have, right? So let's say Facebook is the closest to the user and like the DNS is the furthest away. Um, and you, you talk about the more, kind of how the more important the intermediary is, the less gatekeeping there is. Um, so would you say that we've almost maxed out the feasible gatekeeping at the Facebook level, and now we're falling back to something like Cloudflare and uh, payment processors, and like that's sort of more in the crosshairs now. I, I think as you hit that point of diminishing returns on on mainstream platforms, um, it it naturally throws it back to all that lower lying infrastructure, um, and there is a sort of cascade effect. Um, to some extent, it's also a result of the fact that the underlying infrastructure is less visible. 
it's it's harder for activists or even journalists, writers to really connect some user level misbehavior to the DNS server. Um, so that takes some of the pressure off of them or, or has historically. Um, and I think there is a, as you move towards what looks to be infrastructure, what seems to be used by everyone and what behaves more neutrally and has more of a history of doing so. Um, even for really disfavored figures, there's a greater hesitancy uh, to use the infrastructure to politicize it in order to be rid of them. Um, and often the providers of this infrastructure are very uncomfortable with this, this role being thrust upon them, far less so perhaps than a Facebook or a Twitter because Cloudflare at the end of the day isn't providing a specific environment for users the way an, an edge provider like Facebook is. They are attempting to offer infrastructure to as many sites as they can. So when they're then forced um, or, or even realize that they have the power to, I think in Matthew Prince's words, wake up on the wrong side of the bed and kick someone off the internet, it's a discomforting ability. And once you signal that you have it as well, it's, it's like lighting up a beacon on top of the hill. Everyone will then want to come and entice you or push you to use that power in their service to get rid of their enemies. Um, so it's a very uncomfortable thing to have at, at any level. But the further down that stack you go, the greater the effect of, of using it. And I think, uh, you know, the, harder it is to hold that hot potato. Yeah, I recall, uh, this must have been like 15 years ago now, uh, the Bush administration, the ICANN was going to expand, was beginning the expansion of the, um, the, new, the TLDs, and they were beginning with .xxx. And um, the Bush administration, kind of in an unprecedented move, tried to kind of use our country's control of the root zone and its influence in ICANN to sort of tip the scale a bit and say, hey, we don't want this for moral reasons. And that was a huge scandal because I just, I, I mean, even in a much less censorious internet, uh, to, to jump all the way down the chain to, to start at the DNS level was, was very surprising to people. Yes, and, and unfortunately, as time goes on, I think that kind of behavior or a willingness to, to go there has become more normalized, um, particularly when we look at the financial deplatforming side of things. You had Operation Choke Point during the Obama administration, which targeted payment processing for sex workers, those involved in the firearms trade, and a couple other types of businesses deemed high risk. Um, and obviously when it, you have government doing it rather than um, infrastructure making a decision in, in response to public pressure, it's all the more concerning because it's totalizing to an even greater extent. It's one thing for a widely used infrastructure provider to um, kick someone off their service. It's another thing for the government to signal that anyone in the business or getting into the business of providing some service ought not um, do business with a given given user or client. 
The, um, the totalizing concept is something you touched on in um, your essay. And uh, could you just expand on that for the audience? It was, it was very interesting. Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, it goes back to that, that question of a diverse ecosystem for speech. Um, when you have a new government rule, rather than a rule adopted by a single platform, it affects everyone, and you don't really have an opt-out. It's much harder to see if people are dissatisfied with the rule, if it's working or not, because it's affecting everyone all at once. Um, there isn't a, a test and control, as it were. Um, now, that being said, as, as a kind of unique property of, of government action, we are increasingly seeing cross-platform compacts in which multiple platforms will agree to adopt a single policy on a certain sort of content, or even adopt a shared hash database in which specific pieces of content will be added to the database and then prohibited across a number of services. This was considered legitimate and acceptable when it was limited to child pornography. But as time has gone on, these sorts of proposals, like anything else, have started to creep. They've moved into the terrorism space, and in the past week, uh, TikTok has proposed a hash database for violent content. Um, Evelyn Dueck has a very good paper called Content Cartels um, about this phenomenon. And unfortunately, and I think from the platform perspective, it's often hard to see this, this cost because you just want to clean up your platform and you're tired of being blamed for things happening elsewhere. Um, but the, the ecosystem does need some outlets for that sort of content. Um, and as you creep out from terrorism to violence or extreme speech, once something gets caught up in that hash database, rightly or wrongly, it's much harder to correct it as well. Um, and again, you get that, that totalizing element. It's harder to go put it on another platform and say, see, this is all right. This isn't an issue um, because everyone's already agreed to prohibit it. Uh, I take it you're familiar with the, the Facebook Supreme Court proposal? The oversight board, yeah. Yeah, uh, and my understanding is that there was some element of that that was, I guess, uh, the word is totalizing, right? The It was going to be exported to the other major social media networks. So I I really haven't heard that from any word. Any, oh, okay. Well, from anyone actually involved with the board. I've heard okay. external speculators speak to that as, as some way of handling content moderation across the internet or providing a common set of rules. Um, Frankly, I think they, they have their work cut out for them just with Facebook, and there's very little interest there in um, trying to govern other platforms. Furthermore, I think it, it becomes difficult to, and we already see it in some of these content hash proposals, merely because platforms operate differently at, at the architectural level. They do different things for people, and as a result, they have different problems. Um, we might understand why TikTok would want a hash database for violent video because they algorithmically serve auto-playing video. 
YouTube, on the other hand, which relies much more on users clicking links or following specific um, creators who they already know and trust, they don't have the same need for something like that. It, it's not as pressing. Um, and any cross-platform compact or common set of moderation rules will run into that to some extent. These are different spaces and they ought to be governed differently. Okay. Um, going back to kind of government restrictions on speech versus the, the private restrictions that you've been just talking about, you mentioned that government tends to use intermediary liability more than uh, any type of mandate to, to censor speech or to control what's said? Well, when we look at the way these platforms operate, threatening to tinker with the current intermediary liability regime can offer a lot of leverage um, because at scale, it's impossible for a Facebook or a Twitter to police everything that flows through its platform, um, to parse and understand all of your messages and make sure you aren't engaging in criminal activity. Um, at the moment, any intermediary which handles user-generated content, so long as they aren't creating the content themselves, they're just passing on what you or I upload, they aren't liable for it. It's uh, part of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, um, a kind of long-standing bedrock intermediary liability protection that has allowed the modern internet to, to flourish as all of this happened in America in a way. Um, so you'll often see reform proposals obliquely aimed at, at speech, um, but really altering this, this Section 230 paradigm in one way or another. Um, sometimes intended to push platforms to perhaps leave more up um, by creating more opportunities for users to potentially sue them if they're dissatisfied with the outcomes of, of moderation, or on the other hand, rendering platforms liable for more user-generated content um, in an effort to cause them to draw their policies in a more restrictive sense, excluding more. Um, push or pull, it's... 230s, that intermediary liability is, is often what's being played with or threatened at least. Okay. And uh, as, as, uh, every, um, as every country in the world sort of attempts to get a grip on Facebook and social media in various ways, uh, there was an idea that you mentioned called the you point out basically that the regulatory whole can become more restrictive than the sum of its parts. Uh, that was very interesting. Well, these, these are international platforms and they'd like to provide their users with the ability to speak with one another across borders. That's a large part of the, the appeal of these places. So they like to have common sets of rules as much as possible. It's often difficult to location block specific content and adjudicate who's allowed to see what, where. So naturally, at scale, they gravitate towards singular sets of rules for all of their users. However, as different countries adopt internet regulations that are more or less restrictive in various areas, 
in chasing a universal rule, the platform rule, which then complies with all of the varied national restrictions, will end up having or incorporating the most restrictive aspects of each national rule. So it will end up becoming far more restrictive than any one nation's set of regulations. You know, you might take some anti-blasphemy rules from Turkey, some anti-hate speech rules from Europe, and enforce them platform-wide on users both in Turkey and in Europe. Um, so it, it's certainly a very real concern as more of these nations, I guess, mature in, in their internet regulation and become able to effectively articulate more culturally specific asks. Yeah, I've been following pretty closely how some countries are using their control of, of the internet stack to threaten Facebook, in particular Facebook, uh, to ensure that they remove posts that sort of violate the social order or uh, you know, criticize um, the Thai king is a pretty recent example. Um, so I guess, yeah, I could see that over time as that becomes normalized within Facebook, maybe it could creep out. And that increasingly provides an impetus for users to, to seek out alternative, perhaps more decentralized platforms. Um, and it's often historically provided a sort of proof of concept for alternative networks like IPFS. Um, when Turkey blocks Wikipedia across the board, um, it provides an opportunity for a network like that, which is more censorship resistant, um, to step in and, and demonstrate some worth. Uh, that you take me right to my my next question, which is uh, as these sort of decentralized alternatives like IPFS and so on, uh, Mastodon is another one, begin to take hold. What is your just in general? What do you think of them, and what do you see as their path to adoption? Um, so in, in general, I would like to see them be much more user-friendly. Um, in, in many cases, these systems work conceptually, but in order to, to practically serve the, the average user who struggles with overly restrictive Facebook moderation or, or Twitter moderation, it needs to be accessible to him. And, and in many cases today, it often seems as though the threshold to using these services is, is high enough that anyone who can use it probably either has a really specific use case for it or didn't really need it in order to get their, their communication out there in the first place. However, um, it seems as the file storage and, and distribution systems are, are a little bit ahead of the curve compared to um, social media or more real-time communication. Um, and there are exciting proposals. Things like Urbit seem very interesting um, as, as full-stack um, computing proposals that, at least as built, would really hand a lot more control of, of the technology of one's personal computer to the individual user. Um, it does seem to be that in practice, these technologies are often adopted in response to specific controversies. Um, something causes a, a mass exodus of users from a mainstream platform or 
dissatisfies the number of users and they look for some alternative which is more resistant to potentially censorship they suffered. In a way, the use of you know, not decentralized but simply third-party non-mainstream platforms um, is the adoption looks similar. Um, if you say the uh, supporters of Kyle Rittenhouse who wanted to fund his legal defense but couldn't on GoFundMe and then moved to give send go, um, it, it doesn't look all that dissimilar from say uh, sex workers barred from Twitter trying to set up their own Mastodon instance. Um, and in, so let's jump ahead to the, the future world where maybe we do have a more accessible decentralized speech platform. Uh, does, what does censorship look like? What does law enforcement look like there? Well, crucially, when you've moved to this, this decentralized paradigm, you don't have the same intermediaries to, to push around or lean on in order to remove content that is often um, a surface level indicator of, of some poor behavior or, or malicious activity. And, and so while we obviously don't know exactly um, what, what would change, um, we can say that, that broadly we would see more, I guess, node-centric governance, um, some nodes within a a decentralized or utilizing a decentralized protocol would communicate with others, but some wouldn't. And some would be largely walled off from um, perhaps more, more tightly or restrictively governed parts of, of or that network. Um, as well, you're going to see more user-centric rather than content-centric enforcement. Um, you'll see law enforcement in many cases, targeting specific users rather than leaning more on the intermediary to again, either remove the surface level, um, kind of what, what you can see of, of the misbehavior um, or to, to do something more substantive about it. Um, I think perhaps looking at a couple recent, I guess high profile trolls or, or internet misusers, um, gives us some, some idea of what this might look like at greater scale going forward. Um, the, an organizer of, of Unite the Right, Chris Cantwell, um, was on trial recently and I believe was, was convicted, but I'm not um, perfectly sure. As a result of threats he'd sent in a, an argument with other white nationalists. Um, as well, Andrew Angland, who runs the, the Daily Stormer, a kind of boutique white nationalist publication, um, has also seemingly been, been sued into oblivion or is hiding from um, legal service at, at the moment somewhere. Um, because his behavior and Cantwell's behavior and use of these tools uh, reached the level of real criminality. Um, or, or at least a, a civil tort worth pursuing, I think, in, in England's case. Um, and I think that will necessarily become a, a greater mechanism of network governance or the prevention of malicious network use 
if you have intermediaries which can't so easily be altered to prohibit certain sorts of behavior. Um, in, in a way, this would seem to follow, um, Eugene Volokh talks about cheap speech in the age of the internet and that the, the internet in really throwing open the floodgates to speech, giving everyone the ability to publish has provided for a lot more low level kind of libelous behavior. Uh, people complaining about restaurant servers or how they were treated at a club. Um, and you see courts perhaps adopting more restrictive understandings of, of defamation and, and libel on the margin as, as a result and being more willing to use these tools now that people have new opportunities to, to offend. Um, so I think that that will largely be the paradigm. Um, however, I think that's, that's beneficial. It's much easier to um, mass ban the wrong users or, or create collateral damage when you're going after whole services like arms list because of the misbehavior of a particular set of users. And, and it's much harder to serve a lawsuit to the wrong person. Um, so I, I think that would be largely a positive step. Um, however, we do have to appreciate the, the costs of making some material less censorable um, when we look at terrorist propaganda or child abuse. Um, but again, shift the, the onus, um, shift the focus in, in combating that behavior back to the, the person penning the terrorist screeds or, or instruction manuals or um, abusing a child um, because they're the ones ultimately responsible for doing harm. Uh, well, well, that was a kind of a perfect closing because that you've summarized something that I've not been able to articulate really quite well. So thank you so much for joining us or joining me. And uh, I'll have a link to Will's articles down in the show notes because they really are, really are quite good. So, Will, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great to talk. All right. Anytime.